My name is Jess Nesham, and I am an emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at Mercy One Medical Center in Des Moines, Iowa, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me today are Jenny Kale, an emergency medicine clinical specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital and director of their PGY2 emergency medicine residency, and Chris Herndon, a professor with the Southern Illinois University Edwardsville School of Pharmacy and advanced practice pharmacist with Southern Illinois Healthcare Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Jenny and Chris. Without further ado, let's jump into today's topic, acute opioid withdrawal. So why don't you guys start us out with the overarching question? Why do we treat opioid withdrawal? And what are the dangers of opioid withdrawal? Sure. Thanks, Jess. I'm excited to be chatting about this today. We definitely see a lot of this in the emergency department. So basically, the dangers or concern with opioid withdrawal or undertreated withdrawal symptoms is that they can be incredibly disabling and are really a leading driver for patients to return to using opioids. There are currently numerous methods to palliate withdrawal symptoms and it really improve the likelihood that a patient will remain in recovery. However, preventing and treating opioid withdrawal is quite challenging in every single person. And if time permits, it really should be an individualized plan with slow tapering if they are on prescription opioids and if necessary, potentially going to a detoxification program if the patient does agree to that. Because during this process, patients can become quite anxious and develop cravings that might be quite difficult to control. So opioid tapering in the outpatient setting may be deemed appropriate. But I will say in my practice in the emergency department, we pretty often don't have this luxury as patients either present in active opioid withdrawal or are sent into opioid withdrawal following naloxone administration. Wonderful. So I guess in what patients should we be suspecting opioid withdrawal? Sure. That's a good question. So for patients who present following an opioid overdose and were administered naloxone, we can definitely precipitate an opioid withdrawal depending on the dose of naloxone given. Typically in that setting, we will do the intranasal naloxone at either two milligrams or four milligrams, which is a pretty hefty dose. And so many times patients will experience withdrawal following that. Additionally, another population that's commonly missed are those who have a history of opioid use and are admitted to either the emergency room or the hospital for an extended period of time, and then they kind of just naturally enter withdrawal. And so this is why initial screening questions upon a patient presentation are super important regarding the history of substance use. And you know, what I see quite frequently, Jess, is that when we have patients on the chronic pain side who will take more than they're prescribed early on in the month and then run out towards the end, we frequently will see the beginnings of mild opioid withdrawal as they come in for their follow-up appointments. And it really is kind of a telltale sign that we may be moving towards problematic opioid use, even when it's prescribed and being monitored appropriately. Yeah, those are some great situations to be aware of. What specifically are those signs and symptoms of opioid withdrawal? Sure. So uh, kind of what you experience is largely due to increased autonomic hypersensitivity, and that results in sort of restlessness, anxiety. You could see vital sign changes like tachycardia, hypertension, as well as because there are the mu receptors also in the GI tract, patients will often also get an upset stomach. We tend to see quite a bit of that as well. And one of the things that we see really commonly on the outpatient side is what Jenny was referring to in terms of the GI problems to the point where when we're talking about either inducting a patient on replacement therapy or trying to come up with a compassion cocktail form, they'll have to get up 
and run out of the room to the restroom because either the cramping or the diarrhea is so bad. And it really can be disabling for these folks, like she said. How then are you assessing that opioid withdrawal? Are there any certain tools that you're using commonly? Sure. So in the emergency department, and this tool can really be used in both the inpatient and outpatient settings. It's called the clinical opioid withdrawal scale or known as a COWS for short. And if you're not familiar with this, it's a 11 item scale. And it really just rates the common signs and symptoms of opioid withdrawal so that you can kind of monitor these over time and treat as appropriately. And so once you perform the COWS scale, you'll kind of have a sum of numbers at the end and that will categorize the patient into either mild, moderate, or severe withdrawal. And what you're assessing is the resting heart rate, GI upset, as we talked about, sweating, tremor, restlessness, yawning, the pupil size. If the patient is anxious or irritable, if they have any bone or joint aches, if they have goosebumps, and then if they have any runny nose or tearing, you just rate all of these things and then you get that score at the end. Jenny, have you all ever played around with the subjective opioid withdrawal scale or SOWS? I've heard of it. We've never actually used it, but I'd be very curious. We tried it for a very short period of time in the outpatient side, and we did not like it. We felt like the people completing it weren't answering the questions such that we were getting a really clear picture of what was going on. We thought it would save us a lot of time, but in the mm-hmm. end, it really did not. Interesting. So do you guys use the cows on the outpatient? We do. Yes, ma'am. So I guess for both of you, looking at that COWS score, since that's most universally used, what would be your cutoff then for treatment? Or when do you initiate treatment based on that score? Sure. So it kind of depends which treatment you are initiating. So if you uh, were going with, say, methadone, which is a full mu receptor agonist, you wouldn't be worried about precipitating any withdrawal. And so you could really start at any stage of withdrawal, whether it be mild to severe, Versus if you were starting a buprenorphine because it's a partial mu agonist and so it might bump off um, opioids that are currently on board. We typically recommend at least being in like a moderate withdrawal. So on the cow scale, that would be around like 13 to 24. And do you notice that even in that range, Jenny, that you see a difference? Like if they're at 13 end versus 24 end, that when they take that first dose of buprenorphine, they have variable... The patients that I typically see are quite familiar with buprenorphine. And so they personally are very much aware of what stage they need to be in order to not send themselves into withdrawal. So I honestly can't say that I've seen a lot of precipitated withdrawal, but that's a very good question. We've actually seen a little bit. So when we first initiated our protocol here, we used eight as our score to initiate. And we did see some of those that were in definitely that lesser range of the cow's score that would have some precipitated withdrawal. So then we'd again have to be a little more aggressive with our follow-up doses to manage that. So then moving on, I guess, what medications can be used to treat opioid withdrawal and can they be started in the ED or inpatient? Sure. So there's medications that we use that can really target the kind of uncomfortable symptoms that we talked about with opioid withdrawal. Clonidine and lofexidine are commonly used and they're both centrally acting alpha-2 agonists. And so those really help with kind of the anxiety, the agitation, they can help with hypertension. And then for the tachycardia, we often will use beta blockers, either propranolol or atenolol are most common. And then 
obviously, as we talked about with the GI upset, typically Ondansetron or Zofran is our drug of choice, which has been shown to be more effective than the dopaminergic anti-nausea medications like promethazine or Prochloperazine. But like I said, these are really just for the symptoms and they don't treat the underlying psychologic kind of cravings that, they, that the patient will have. And so these should really only be used as adjuncts to either buprenorphine or methadone. There is the long acting agent. However, you need a period of not using to start that. And so we don't start that in the ED, but both buprenorphine and methadone, you can start. I'd just like to add too that on the outpatient side, we often will what we call use these kind of compassion cocktails of different medications like Jenny was referring to. And the other ones that we'll sometimes add in depending on the severity include tizanidine, which has some centrally acting alpha-2 agonism properties too. Gabapentin will use hydroxazine if there's a big anxiety component. And I almost always will send somebody out with an NSAID. Again, most of the folks that I'm seeing are patients that suffer from chronic pain. And so I think the withdrawal exacerbates that underlying pain component. Wonderful. And then how do you initiate these medications for opioid use disorder? Sure. So it really kind of depends, like I said, what stage of withdrawal that you're in. Methadone, again, is great because you can start it at any point of withdrawal. Some patients are quite nervous about that precipitated withdrawal, and that might actually prevent them from seeking treatment. But if you are in sort of mild or moderate withdrawal, you can start the buprenorphine. Typically, the dosing is to give like half film of the eight and two. So a total of four and one, this is what we do at MGH. And then just monitor cravings over the next hour. And then if they are experiencing additional withdrawal symptoms or cravings, we'd give another half. So another four and one suboxone film. And then every six hours after that, we'll give another half to really not exceed a total of 16 milligrams of buprenorphine in the first 24 hours. And then the dose that was effective on the first day, we just give that dose initially on the second day. But like I said, a lot of patients aren't able to really get through the induction period easily. And so, and they don't want to wait till they're in active withdrawal. So there's kind of a new method called microdosing. I guess it's not super new, it's been around for a few years, or often referred to as the Bernice method of buprenorphine induction. And so with this, it's really thought that repetitive administration of small doses of buprenorphine with sufficiently long intervals in between won't precipitate the withdrawal. And during this time, the patient will continue either using the illicit opioids or the prescription opioids until you have reached a sufficient dose of the suboxone, and then you can kind of taper from there. But if you do choose methadone, that's often started at 30 or 40 milligrams on the first day, and then up titrated with the outpatient treatment program. And we follow something very similar outpatient where we ask them to bring in their first dose. We have tried the microdosing technique, especially in people who are very fearful of even going into moderate withdrawal. And what we've started doing, and I think you alluded to this earlier, is we started asking our patients if they've been using buprenorphine or methadone received from non-prescription methods, I guess we could say. And a lot of times we'll induct at home, especially with the pandemic, where we have frequent every two to three hour phone calls from somebody within our team to check on them and instruct on redosing, et cetera. And it seemed to go very well, but I'm fascinated with how well the patients who seek help already know what 
doses of buprenorphine or methadone they need in order to be comfortable. So you guys have given a lot of great background and really described how beneficial this can be. But again, it's not probably as widely used as it maybe should be. So are there any prescribing requirements that are indicated for either the inpatient or outpatient setting? And how do those impact utilization or prescribing? Yeah, I think this is a really great question and it's a very confusing one. I've spent hours and hours trying to figure out what the laws mean and what the 72 hour law is and all of that, because we do want to initiate these agents in the emergency department so that the patients do feel comfortable leaving and can likely get kind of linked into an outpatient program. So what I have discovered with the 72 hour rule is that any provider, so you don't need an X waiver to prescribe the buprenorphine for the 72 hours, and you can actually send the patient home with enough supply to get them through those three days. So at MGH, we do have a Suboxone to-go kit, and it has six films of the eight and two. And so that will hopefully get them to an outpatient treatment clinic. Here we have the Bridge Clinic. And patients almost 100% of the time get a appointment within those three days. So that's a 72-hour rule with buprenorphine. For methadone, the FDA actually approved this past March that you can also do 72 hours of methadone from the ED. However, the difference is you can't actually send the patient home with the three days of methadone. They would have to kind of represent to the hospital to get their dose. However, this is actually really awesome because patients who were initiated on methadone in the hospital, it might be difficult to get them into an outpatient treatment program right away. And so we would actually have to like taper them off the methadone at discharge because we weren't allowed to give them supply after they left. Or now they have at least a few days where they can represent while they get kind of linked into an outpatient program. On the outpatient side, the X waiver requirement for prescribing at least buprenorphine-containing products has been lessened quite a bit, where now if you wish to treat opioid use disorder as a physician, you just need to send a letter of intent to SAMHSA. There's a link on the website now that you can treat up to 30 patients without going through the X waiver training. There are some bills that are currently being introduced at the federal level to eliminate the X waiver. I know that this professional organization in collaboration with a lot of others has also been lobbying very strongly to, if not eliminate the X waiver, at least to add pharmacists that are practicing in this area to be able to complete the waiver training since I think 13 or 14 states now allow for individual DEA registration for pharmacists. And I believe that is HR 1384 for any listeners that want to look that up. Thank you. Because yes, that is definitely a point of confusion for a lot of providers. So it's great to know that some of those restrictions or limitations are being lessened. Now, I know there are a few long acting agents. Chris, you had briefly mentioned that you may be using these some in the outpatient setting. Are you able to talk to us about these agents and in what patients they would be most appropriate? Surely. Thanks. Great question. The long-acting agents currently are long-acting naltrexone or the long-acting opioid antagonist. That's a once-monthly injection. We do use that. However, we find it to be very cumbersome to initiate. Most of the patients that we do see are not able to tolerate the 10 to 14 day requirement of being without any opioids. So it's very tough to get patients 
started on that. The other two are buprenorphine products. One is called probufine, which is a implantable device that actually releases drug over the course of six months. And then the one that we have the most clinical experience with is called sublocade. And that is a once a month subcutaneous injection. And once the drug vehicle hits the fluids within the sub-Q space, it actually kind of hardens in a semi-firm composite. I don't know really the best way to describe it. It's fascinating to palpate after it's been injected and that releases over time. We've probably had 75% success rate with that particular drug where patients are able to tolerate it and not have any kind of breakthrough cravings or withdrawal in between the injections. It's very concerning because if you can't get them in for the injection, it's very easy for these patients to unfortunately fall off the radar and have them return to use, which nobody wants. As far as coverage is concerned, now Trexone, the Vivitrol version, no problems getting that covered. And at least in Illinois, where I'm at, all of the third-party payers are very willing to cover the sublocade version, the long-acting once-a-month injectable. And there is a once-weekly injectable that's currently undergoing FDA review. So what if the patient is reluctant or doesn't want to start medication for opioid use disorder? Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I think this is very important because as we know, not all patients are ready or interested in recovery and you just have to kind of be okay with that and that this is the reality, but this doesn't mean that we still can't help these patients to be as safe as possible with, you know, safe injection teaching and providing clean supplies or information on where these patients can get clean supplies. I see too often that the conversation really ends when the patient denies medical therapy for opioid use disorder and I really think we need to think about this as a continuum of care, and that really also includes patients who aren't ready to start recovery yet. I couldn't agree more. And I think the other thing that we really need to solidify in terms of you know, what we're able to do with it above and beyond that safe use, we've really been struggling with these fentanyl test strips that we've been trying to get out to patients who do continue to use drugs and making sure that they are using as safely as they can. I'll be frank with you of the urine drug screens that we've completed over the last three years. I haven't seen heroin in any of them. It's always been fentanyl starting right probably about three or four months into the pandemic. And I haven't seen, you know, a morphine or 6-MAM since on any of our screens. And I don't know if Jenny has seen different, but I'd be fascinated to hear her experience. I've seen similar over the past couple of years. It's scary. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank both Jenny and Chris for a great topic and discussion. There's a lot involved with the opioid epidemic and different ways that we can be involved and help. So these are, again, great suggestions. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org slash podcast. Finally, if you haven't before, I encourage you and all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on ambulatory care, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious disease, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through our favorite podcast provider and see you next time.